Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. This is Tim Cronin. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. And we're continuing our discussion of closing argument. And last time we were talking about a framework for presenting damages. We kind of went through an introduction of things you need to hit, providing a rational basis for damages, showing what the law requires, explaining what the law does not allow, highlighting emotional aspects, using memorable examples. And uh, we kind of got through talking about the instructions, ways to put your client's injuries in perspective, and then a discussion of physical harms, pain, impairment, medical treatment your client has gone through, and the physical limitations resulting from it. And now we're going to move on to talking about emotional harms and then some follow-up thoughts. So emotional harms. Emotional harms typically are more devastating, more significant than the injury, you know, the personal injury cases. And what I mean by emotional harms, anxiousness about the future, a feeling of helplessness. Maybe the injury is such that your privacy is stolen, your dignity is stolen, you need care, you're in a wheelchair, you know, trapped in a body that doesn't work. And let me give you a good example. We've had multiple burn injury cases where the emotional aspect is unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. Tried one last year where, I mean, the client just covers herself up head to toe every day. She's so embarrassed about people staring at her scars. First of all, I would develop some specific examples of how the harms and the losses have affected your client from an emotional standpoint. And I here, let me give you an example. I represented a man in his 40s, and he was on the back of the truck. The truck drove off while he was stepping off the back of it, and he landed straight down on his feet, ended up really tearing up his lower back, he had a couple surgeries, wasn't able to go back to work. I mean, he had a really, really bad back injury, no question. It was a significant physical injury. He had pain with it. He was in his mid-40s. He lived on his own, and that was something that he really, really took pride in, was being independent himself. And at the time we tried the case, he had lost his job. He had to end up selling his house and just having a good, quiet conversation with him, preparing him for trial. He broke down and that was it. It wasn't the back pain. Back pain was horrible and he took medication for it and all of this. But the biggest issue for him was his loss of accomplishment and pride and satisfaction. We presented that and got a very good result in the case at trial. But again, it wasn't the, and he did have plenty of the surgery and the physical pain, but I think a lot of times we don't fully appreciate the extent of the emotional impact of the injury or the loss to our clients. And we were going to get that by reading a deposition where some defense lawyer spent two hours asking questions about medical visits and medical records and things like that. Guess what? You got to get to know your client, figure out what's going on in their head if you can, and spend enough time with them that hopefully they will open up to you so that you can actually understand how what happened affected them. You have no chance at all of beginning to convey that to anybody unless you understand it to some extent yourself. John and Tim, I know that you handle a lot of cases that are catastrophic injuries or death. How would your strategy change, if at all, where the defense puts up a stiff opposition to whether that person is able to do these things? In other words, they might be saying the injury is not as bad as you're claiming or it's, you know, the client is claiming just pain and they're saying, yeah, but you can do everything you can do. You know, it really depends on uh, hopefully they're not right. You better make sure if you're making claims about your client's damages and injuries, you feel pretty confident that you can prove it. 
a lot of times, even if there is some credibility to it and it's a legitimate close call question for the jury, make sure you don't overstate anything. But a lot of times the other side will go too far once or twice. And if you can blow them up once or twice with something with some document, then it eliminates their credibility on the argument. But it depends on, you know, how good of an argument they have on it. And just you got to make sure you're not overstating your own client's injuries and damages because then you lose all credibility. That seems right. And we've talked about credibility over and over on this podcast, the importance of not yeah. losing credibility and your client too. So I think that's exactly yeah. right. It's not every case is a $5 million yeah. case. If yeah. your client's case is a $75,000 case and you got to try it like a $75,000 case. Yeah. Do not overstate anything ever. So, you know, like John said, you really need to take the time to get to know your client and just talk to them like a human being about what's going on with their life. Try to understand them in order to best be able to convey through testimony and your own argument after it, the emotional difficulties and harms that your client is going through. And then at some point, you got to ask for an amount. It doesn't have to be a specific amount, but you got to give the jury some guidance about what you think they should do. And again, you've already reminded the jury, hopefully, about what the law requires about how to consider that. Go back to your themes about what was taken from your client and how it's something we value most in life. Give some memorable examples as you're leading up to asking for an amount. You can talk about some of the examples earlier, you know, that we pay somebody $25 million to play a game and think nothing of it. CEOs make 30 or $40 million a year. Nobody bats an eye about that. People buy racehorses right. for $25 million. And, you know, or a photo and just those kinds of things. And so what do we assess when somebody can't walk anymore? What do we assess when somebody has to spend the rest of their life in a wheelchair? And every morning they have to wake up and realize they're lying in that bed and they're paralyzed and have to come to that realization every day, relive that fact every day, emphasize what they go through every day, and the next you know, 3,000 days are going to be the same. Yeah, and I think part of it too is you need to have laid the groundwork for the number in Vordier and possibly in opening. Maybe not, I don't like giving a specific number in either Vordier opening, but I will certainly let them know it's a significant amount. I may even get into the fact that it's multiple millions of dollars. And then at the end, after you've gone through the instructions and you've made a good rational basis and presentation for what's fair and just in damages, I always suggest a range. I rarely give a specific number. That's what I usually do. And I, suggest I like a range. putting it in the juror's hands and even acknowledging some of you might think that's too high. Some of you might think that's not enough. And then I will usually say truthfully, you know, I think that two times that amount or three yeah. times isn't too much. I think X isn't enough for what was taken from my client. I think two to three times that isn't too much. That's for you all to go back and talk about. I might, and I've seen you do this before, John, sometimes break it out even further into specific categories. I mean, you like you have medical bills, past, future, life care plan, lost wages, but then break out, you know, non-economic damages into different categories like past pain and suffering, future pain and suffering, past and future loss of enjoyment of life, past and future mental anguish, past and future disfigurement, and suggest ranges or amounts for that. And sometimes specific amounts and ask for a specific amount after you add all those things together. But I think it helps to break down, rather than just saying a total number, some ranges for the different categories they're supposed to consider in non-economic in addition to your economic damages. But you really just got to feel it out and make sure however you're asking for it, whether it's a range or a number, that you are comfortable with it. Because if they sense you think you might be asking for too much or you're not comfortable with it, I mean, they're going to pick up on that. 
and then you know you've lost credibility with them yet again. So you better sincerely feel comfortable that the amount you're asking for is fair. Yeah, and you know here's the thing too: you can't fake it. It's the same thing. You got to be authentic. You got to be yourself. If you're trying to sell something you don't believe in, it ain't going to work. If you're not convinced absolutely that that is a fair value for that case. And what I do is I try to request a number actually that is less than what I legitimately feel the case is worth. And I tell the jury that the number I'm giving you is conservative. It's a low number. You know, the other thing, and I've not done this myself, but I know other lawyers who have in Vordire to confront the jury and say, you know, for instance, who here thinks that lawyers ask for more than they actually want versus the number they actually need? And I know a lawyer who has done this and he says, we all trust me. Anybody yeah, here? And I'm asking, and I'm for, asking what for what I actually need. Yeah. So again, there's some component of that. I mean, if you just put that number out, there might be some people on that panel that think, well, that's the way the thing goes. You know, that's the way it happens is if you want X, you ask for three X or two X. And I think you need to be genuine. You need to confront that. You say, you know, we're not asking for more than what we believe the case is worth. Actually, we're asking for less than what we think it's worth. Yeah. And I think, you know, whether before or after you suggest a range or a number, I think you have to try to give the jury some reason for the money. You know, how the money is actually going to help your client, benefit your client, do them some good. Because it helps diffuse arguments we've talked about, like money can't fix the problems, giving them only what they need to get by. Think about ways in which your clients can be improved. Yeah, being able to help their family, being able to travel and see distant relatives, being able to regain some sense of independence, you know, relieving the family, not yeah. being a burden on the family anymore. But you really do, and I think it is critical. It's very, very important. You need to show the jurors how that money is going to do a world of good or do some significant good for your client or your client's family. And so addressing a little bit, you know, some of the defendant's damage arguments, and we've talked about this a bit, but here's some specific examples and some replies to it. So giving the plaintiff only what he needs to get by. And some of the ways this is suggested as he or she's doing great now. The kids are doing great. He's working and getting great help. The family's taking good care of him. Doesn't need all that money. Give him only what he needs to get by. And I mean, one of the main replies to that, all those things is that is not the law. That is not how they're supposed to consider it. Yeah. And maybe it's a bad example, but it's kind of like you buy a brand new car and the first day you buy it, you park it out in front of your house and a truck comes by and totals it. And so you're talking to the insurance adjuster about getting paid for your brand new car. And they start asking you questions about, well, where do you drive? Is it on the bus line? Do you have a family member who could drop you off at work in the morning and pick yeah, you, you up? you just need to get here or there. So a bus pass or yeah, a, how about a, a used car? year old so again, Jeep car? Well, I, no, know, there's that's some not, about me that doesn't like that particular no, example. But, but the but point is, the point, that's not fairly yeah. and accurately compensating for what was lost. Yeah, and, and then use the instructions. So another one that we confront all the time, well, the money can't fix the problem. We can't bring them back. We can't make them walk. And, it won't and, do any good. And that's why it's important to show how it can help. It can't fix the problem but it can put that person in the best position possible. It can improve their lives. Show how the money can improve your client's life. Give back some independence or dignity or privacy or ability to help family members or take the burden off. We've had clients where what has happened, whether it's a paralysis or a brain injury, they're looking for medical advancements. They have a life expectancy of 40 years or 30, 40, 50 years maybe. And the issue is, will the medical world advance sufficiently so that there's some uh, cure or- Some uh, way to improve their quality right, of life, exactly. their condition. I mean, history tells us almost certainly yes, but we don't know what it is. 
but who should get the benefit of having the opportunity to take right. advantage of and them you know, or our injured sure. client. I mean, you want your client to be able to take advantage of any new medical developments that come out. Yeah. Great Vordar question. You know, stuff just happens. Bad, sometimes bad things happen. Not everybody runs to the courthouse and files a lawsuit about it. This is definitely something you have to address in Vordar. And in auto or trucking cases, they want to keep calling it an accident, right? And I think you address it in voir dire, and I will not use the word accident throughout the trial. I will not use the word accident. Unless some, it's a product liability case. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And just say, you know, accident implies nobody's fault. And I'll just tell the jury, that's why they keep using it. They want to keep using a word that in your mind means it's nobody's fault. This wasn't an accident. This is something that was done to my client where there's definitely fault. So you have to deal with that in voir dire. What's, what's your favorite word to insert when you're talking about the crash, thing? Yeah, crash, incident, the negligence that injured my client. Yes. <laughs> I'll use the word incident usually repeatedly or the crash or just, you know, a short phrase. When my client was run over in the crosswalk, this rear end collision or calling it a collision, I just I won't use the word accident. And, you know, when there's a statement of the case that we have to work out with the other side, they always want to try to put the word accident in it. And I just, I refuse to do it. I guess, you know, there's a common phrase, accidents happen. As yeah, though it's right. inevitable. It goes right into the, yeah. you know, sometimes My very definition, it's the absence of negligence. Right. So I think that's something you got to identify the jurors who feel that way and deal with it early on in the case. Because typically those kinds of jurors who feel that way, and it's their right to feel that way. They're not going to give any kind of award. And if they're not going to follow the evidence and the instructions, then they shouldn't be on the jury. If they're really hitting that hard, I think you got to address it again. Yeah, and then close. the other, the argument, we talked a little about this, of, you know, well, her family can take care of her. They're doing a fine job. It's been three years since the accident. They didn't need any of these things. It's in the life care plan. And you need to be prepared to address that throughout the case in Vordire and opening with the witnesses. You know, the wife who's taking care of her husband, yeah. time is limited. Maybe that means she can't work. Maybe that means she can't spend time with her other children or grandchildren. And then what happens if the caregiver, if it's a spouse, what happens if something happens to them? Taking care of one spouse takes away your ability to help other family members who get sick or get ill. And really, I mean, it's an argument that doesn't follow the instructions. The whole point of the tort system is who should bear the brunt of an injury that was caused by someone else. If you're at damages, a liability is assumed. And they're literally asking the jury to have the injured person's family bear the brunt of the injury rather than the injury-causing entity or person. Take the instruction, you would never rewrite it to, if the defendant causes injury, you will order that the spouse will now yeah. <laughs> take care of the injured right. person. Right. The spouse can do it. The kids can do it. The family can do it. So we shouldn't have to pay as much money is really what it comes down to. And sometimes it's just bluntly calling them out on that's what they're arguing. And then, you know, I usually file a motion in limine on this. So usually the exact words aren't used, but implications that like $25 million is like winning the lottery. Oh, they got hurt. Now they're coming to run to the courthouse with a lottery ticket. And John, what are some of the responses? Well, that hasn't happened too often with me. I mean, I've got good lawyers on the other side yeah. of cases. You know, the old saying, you don't want to kick a wounded dog. Okay. Yeah. If you got somebody who's hurt, good defense lawyers will not go on the attack. Quite honestly, it just helps you. But if they were to make that argument, your client's paralyzed, uh, giving him $100 million or $50 million is like winning the lottery. Think about, okay, well- Does he look they, like a lottery winner? Yeah, does he look like a lottery winner? If you came to pick up a lottery check and they said, okay, but you need to leave here in a wheelchair and you'll never be able to get out of it for the rest of your life, who's cashing that check? Right. But anyway, I think in a serious injury case, if the defense attacks your client, 
I think nine times out of 10, it helps you. And then some cases you might, maybe because of focus groups or just the innate nature of the case or your client or the situation, might need to reassure the jury that there's going to be a responsible use of the money. And I've heard lawyers say that even in cases where you have a disabled client or a client who's a minor and the money is going to go into the trust. And there's always some suspicion. Maybe the parents or someone else taking advantage and getting to that. Sure. And I think under those circumstances, trust is going to be set up. Under law, it's going to get set up. Or some kind of supervised. The court can supervise. And I think it's important to let the jury know that, to let them know that these funds will be put away in a trust. Nobody's touching them. This money is not for mom. It's not for dad. It's for the child who was injured because that's top of their mind. No question. I know that from talking to jurors. I know that from focus groups. They want to make sure that if they give an award, that that award is going to the plaintiff, not to anybody else. Have you ever drawn an objection on that? You seem to be a yeah, witness standing I, you know what? up there projecting I, I, I have, speculation. I have, and it's, I mean, why hide the truth? It needs to be protected. I mean, it came up, I was just talking about the Vore Dyer I did last month in a case. It was a minor involved in that case, and that was the person who stood up and said, well, my only concern about considering a large amount is I don't want all the lawyers to get it. I want to make sure it goes to the plaintiff, the child who was injured. And that opened the door for me to say, well, I can assure you that any amount is going to be placed into a restricted trust and it was going to be supervised by the court. I think you have to honestly respond to that. And any attorney who doesn't want the jury to know that the law requires the court to supervise and make sure the money is protected should set off warning signals to the court. Like, well, judge, they want to try to suggest that it's not going to be. I mean, there's no harm in letting the jurors know if it's a minor or disabled person, someone who has a guardian, the court has an obligation to make sure the money will be protected for the use of that person and that person alone. And I haven't had a problem. I've had objections, but I haven't been stopped from saying that. So in conclusion, first of all, you need to spend at least half of your time talking to the jury about damages. You need to give the jury a logical, reasonable approach to assessing damages. We have jury instructions. We have the law that assists us with that issue. The law tells you how you're going to award damages and what those damages should consist of. But I think the most important thing is you got to try to walk in your client's shoes for a little bit. And I know you can work as hard as you can on that, and you're never really ever going to be able to understand fully and completely what they've gone through. But spend some time with your client and you'll find out some amazing things and you need to spend a lot of time with them and spend that time listening. Well, next time we're going to continue our discussion of damages in closing argument by addressing death claims. We focused mostly on uh, injury claims for this time. So we hope you join us again next time where we're going to focus a little bit more on death claims. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm Eric Feith. I'm John Simon. See you next time. The Jury is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast. Subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.